1: Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. The book under discussion today is Brian Clegg's latest work, The Reality Frame, which covers Einstein's theory of relativity and a whole lot more. Simply as an exposition of Einstein's theories, the book is excellent. It's beautifully organized and delivered with Brian's usual clarity and insight. But what makes the book transcend the usual work on this subject is that Brian looks at relativity as a concept that can help us understand what distinguishes humanity as a species and where our species fits into the universe. Brian, welcome again to the show. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure. The subtitle of the book is Relativity and Our Place in the Universe. How do you go about the task of weaving the two together? I think that having a good
0: grasp of relativity helps us, if you like, establish where we stand. Um, Historically, I I think we tended to think of ourselves as being too important, the centre of the universe. Uh, But since the scientific revolution, science has pushed us the other way, emphasising how insignificant we are. And I think when you look at our position, making realistic comparisons, which is what relativity is about, we've actually done remarkably well.
1: Yeah, I think we have done remarkably well, given that we've only had one hundred and eighty thousand years to work at it as a species, and maybe only five thousand years when we actually did any science. But let's get <laughs> to the let's get to the science. Um, yeah. The incident with Galileo throwing a key into the air while on a moving boat shows that relativity as a concept goes back to the seventeenth century and maybe even earlier.
0: Yeah, um, what, what Galileo was aware of is that it's meaningless to talk of movement without saying what you're moving with respect to. And and that's really what relativity
1: is about. Anyway, that brings up the concept of what exactly is a frame of reference.
0: Indeed, when you see things relativistically, uh, you need to establish what your position is relative to the thing you're observing. And the frame of reference is the context uh, in which you see something. So, for instance, uh, a familiar argument from history is whether the Earth goes around the Sun or the sun goes around the Earth, and when we say that the Earth goes around the Sun, that's fr- looking from an external frame of reference, which is very sensible when you're thinking about orbits. but there's nothing wrong actually with using the frame of reference of the Earth's surface, the traditional way of saying the sun rises and sets, as long as we're aware of that's what we're doing. Uh, you know if I'm sat on a train, the train isn't moving as far as I'm concerned, it's the world that's moving backwards around us. Uh, It's really a matter of how you look at things, and that's really important in physics to get things right.
1: Yeah, I seem to recall uh, that uh, Ernst Mach was uh, involved in the discussion of that particular thing, but that was a part of physics that I didn't really understand too well. So I'm glad I had an opportunity to read your book. Um, And speaking of which, why and how should relativity be included in the educational curriculum? How do you believe relativity transcends its usual place in the physical sciences?
0: Really, just because relativity is about how we see things, and it's very easy to assume that our own frame of reference is the only valid one. Uh, but in so many things, whether you're talking politics or religion, as much as the sciences, having a grasp of relativity is essential to get an effective view. So, you know, one viewpoint is not necessarily the only viewpoint, is one of the things relativity teaches us.
1: Yeah, and that's a lesson we could be learning on a lot of different fronts today. Yeah. Um, um, one of the things that you do in the, your book is that you create what you call a toy universe. How does that provide a unifying theme for various sections of your book? Well, I, I just thought trying to come at it a
0: little bit differently, it would be, it'd be a good idea to, to build this this model of universe, adding in various components so we can see how relativity comes into our understanding. Um, or for that matter how it doesn't so if if you start with absolutely nothing at all totally empty space there can't be any relativity because there is no frame of reference i can't measure something with respect to anything else it's only when we start adding things in and building up that universe we can see relativity starting to be important
1: you know one of the things that you do is uh the first thing that you put in your toy universe as i recall was space and how Mm has the concept of space evolved over time
0: I think it's fair to say a lot of the development of science has been about moving from taking an absolute viewpoint to a relative one. Uh, And that's certainly true of space. So, for instance, Newton spoke about there being absolute space and absolute time. But we now know that relativity plays an essential part so that when we're moving or under the influence of gravity, for instance, space and time are modified. So we no longer see them as an absolute, but something where we always have to take into account what is our frame of reference? How are we looking at them?
1: One of the things that intrigued me was that St- uh, was Stephen Weinberg's idea of the ultimate textbook, um, because of course I've always wanted to write the ultimate textbook, at least in <laughs> mathematics. So, um, what is Stephen Weinberg's idea of this?
0: Well, I, I interviewed Stephen, uh, who's a physics Nobel Prize winner, a, a while ago, and he talked about this idea of there being a future where a textbook could be written, where Chapter One set out all the basic rules of how the universe works. And you could then carry on to build everything on that. And he believed that once once that's written, it's not that science is finished, it's over, because there's always lots of detail to fill in. But he believes that in principle, it's possible. Uh, To be honest, I'm more doubtful. Uh, Scientists often forget that they're creating models. Uh, And I'm with uh, the old philosopher, Immanuel Kant, who, who basically said we can't ever know reality. We can only know what our senses tell us, which isn't quite the same thing.
1: One of the things that also you talk about is the role of constants. And that was Mm -hmm. interest to me because I wrote a book on constants uh, in science. And what role do constants play in the construction of the universe?
0: Well, in the end, I think constants are essential to be able to work things out and have anything that really approximates to a sense of order. If you imagine, for example, that the speed of light was constantly varying, uh, it wouldn't just mess up any measurements. Based on, the, say, the time light takes to cover distances, so we're looking at into space. But there would be all son- sorts of oddities because constants like this are at the heart uh, of how reality works, if you like. So, the, for instance, light, the speed of light, is involved in the relationship between energy and matter. We we both struggle to do science because we, nothing would ever stay fixed, but also, frankly, to exist if the constants were going all over the place.
1: Yeah, we can get back, uh, uh, we can sort of get to that again when we discuss the idea of the anthropic universe, um, but I'm trying to continue through your book in the sequence in which it was written rather than darting around, which you're ri- one is always tempted to do when covering topics like this. Um, you next discuss the idea of the standard model, which has been, you know, the uh, maybe the high point of physics in the last quarter century what is it? I realize you can't explain exactly what it is, but what basically is the standard model and why may it need modification? Uh, there are
0: actually a, a number of things that are called the standard model, but the one we're talking about here is the standard model of particle physics, which identifies the basic fundamental particles that make things up and the forces uh, that hold things together or make things happen. Um, and um, it's traditional to think of that really as, as, as the you know, the centre of of how everything works. But in the end, we have, for example, this concept of dark matter, uh, of stuff that's out there that doesn't behave like ordinary matter, which current theory suggests there's about five times as much as as ordinary matter. Uh, And that, at the moment, does not sensibly fit with the standard model. And there are other issues as well. For instance, if if we try to incorporate gravity into the model, which currently stands alone. So there's no doubt that it's really good for the bits it works for, But we also know there's there's quite a lot of stuff out there that that it isn't explaining.
1: Yeah. One of the things that you did later on in your book is you gave one of my favorite examples from physics about when… Max Planck decided to study physics and he talked to a famous (laughs) physicist of the time and the physicist advised him to do something else as basically everything was known except the values of the constants to one more decimal place. And I think one of the things that relativity does and that you pointed out earlier in this talk is it points out that there's so much that we don't know and mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the quest of physics, I don't know whether Steven Weinberg's ultimate textbook will ever be written, but the qu- even then, is, as you mentioned, the quest of science is not yet done by a long shot.
0: Oh, oh that's that's absolutely right. Uh, and, you know, Philip Von Jolly, the, this uh, physics professor, actually said to Max Planck, he probably ought to play the piano professionally instead because he was a great pianist. Uh, <laughs> but actually, uh, the fact is uh, that he was able to totally transform physics. Uh, And this is going to happen again. We're certainly nowhere near that textbook yet.
1: Yeah. Um, Now let's get on to uh, something beyond space. What are the wave and particle theories of light and how were they resolved?
0: Well, uh, for a long time, there were good arguments for light being either a wave or a stream of particles. So Newton, for instance, uh, thought it was a stream of particles. The great thing about that is it can go across empty space because we know light comes to us uh, from the sun and the stars across empty space. Uh, Waves usually have to have something to wave in. You know, if you think waves in water. You take the water away, (laughs) you can't have a wave left. Uh, And similarly, ordinary waves don't work in empty space. And on the other hand, light has some behaviors uh, like interference, where two, uh, two sources of light uh, interact with each other that behave just like the way waves do. Um, so there was theory suggesting that both were the possibility. And quantum physics emerging in the early 20th century established that light could behave as both, but not at the same time. But what we have to remember always is that these are models. Light is light. Uh, these are ways of describing it. But really, we're not saying light is a wave or life, light is a particle, but they're good models for describing how it behaves.
1: Yeah, and they're also great models for enabling us to do predictions and build things corresponding to those predictions.
0: Yeah, that's right. Uh, and the same applies to the, the, the most modern approach, I guess, which is fields. Uh, you know, if you talk to a physicist these days, uh, they'll talk about light being uh, an excitation, ex- excitation in the quantum field, uh, and that's a, a field is it's a bit of a difficult concept, really. But it's a bit like a contour map on a scale of one to one. It's it's something that spreads through all the space uh, and has a value at every place in space. And again, it's a great model. Uh, it's probably the best one actually for describing how many things behave. But it is still a model.
1: I'm wondering, um, uh, do you think the field concept? Uh, originated with Faraday, uh, and the description of, uh, the magnetic, his description of the way magnetic, uh, forces behaved around a magnet, or would, did it possibly go earlier than that?
0: I think Faraday certainly was the one who very much brought it to the centre of attention. So that then, when Maxwell was working after him, he was he was inspired by Faraday. Faraday was is no way you know a modern scientist, a modern physicist. He he was mathematically uh, had very little experience at all, but he had a great grasp for, for sort of like the feeling of reality, the feeling of nature, uh, and this idea of a field was something he put together to describe how magnetism works, and it's really been extended from there. Uh, to develop this concept of quantum fields that, that we use today.
1: Um, you alluded earlier to dark matter and mm-hmm. um, the fact that it would be used to, uh, it's one of the things that has to be taken into account when we modify the standard model. What problems does dark matter solve?
0: Well, it dates back to the 30s when they, uh, uh, astronomer called uh, Fritz Vicky was the first to notice that there was something weird about the way that clusters of galaxies moved around. Because basically, pretty well, everything in the universe spins. Um, And when something spins around, if it spins too fast, bits fly off it, because the force holding it together isn't strong enough to keep things in. And he noticed, and later on, uh, other astronomers, notably Vera Rubin, noticed that things out in space, particularly galaxies, are rotating so fast that bits should be flying off them. There's not enough stuff in them to hold it together. Uh, and so they conjectured that there was some extra stuff, some extra materials out there that's holding it together, something that's influenced by gravity but isn't affected by electromagnetism. So we can't see it, we can't touch it, but it has this gravitational effect that holds the galaxies together. And if it does exist, then, as I say, that there's probably about five times as much of it out there as there is ordinary matter.
1: Yeah, and it's amazing that here the universe is five times as much dark matter as it is ordinary matter and we haven't managed to detect it yet, we just, you know, we're pretty sure that it exists. And that's something that has happened in science throughout history is that we're pretty sure that something exists because it fits in with our models. I'm thinking, for instance, of the periodic table in chemistry and Mendeleev's uh, projection of the existence of unknown elements. But that's one of the beauties of science that has always fascinated me, is that um, there are all these areas such as you know, the periodic table, prediction of planets simply because we know how they perturb the orbits, prediction of planets outside the solar system it's uh it's just an incredible tri- uh tribute to the power of science that we can make predictions based on what we know and later we find out that those predictions are for the most part true
0: yeah absolutely i mean it's very much how science works and what distinguished is the scientific method from uh some of the other ways of looking at the world is that if it's not making predictions that we can test it probably isn't really science uh and, that, and that's really what science is about is it's, it's Looking at the world, developing a model of how it's working, making predictions from that, and seeing how it works out.
1: You know, there was a great example in your book that I absolutely loved. Why Mm. can we sit on a chair when most of it is empty space?
0: Yeah, we don't really think about it because we look at a chair, it looks solid, but actually, the vast majority of atoms is just empty space. Uh, And there is really no reason were it not for this one effect um, that you wouldn't just fall straight through a chair. Um, And the reason is electromagnetism. It's the same thing uh, that makes electricity and magnets work. But basically, there are electrically charged particles in the chair. There's electrically charged particles in you. They repel each other. uh, And so almost what you could say is you kind of float an, an incredibly tiny distance above the chair. It's the chair repelling you rather than you actually physically sitting on it.
1: I know when we feel the chair but uh, <laughs> but I like that idea because you ne- I I'd never really heard it discussed precisely that way but yes we do float a fra- you know some incredibly small fraction above it because of uh, the re- uh the repulsion effect of the uh, electromagnetic field and the next thing on the agenda that I think is very important is how time enters into your construction of the toy universe. What are some of the ways that we explain time?
0: I think the important thing is to think about what it does for us. Time's one of those things it's really difficult to get your head around. Uh, and that's been the case, you know, for centuries. Uh, but there's a couple of things I think we do do it. With it, one obvious thing is is what we measure with clocks. Um, you could also say that, for instance, it's the thing that stops everything happening at once.
1: Yeah, oh, that's um, one of my favourite comments. <laughs>
0: yep, and an important way to look at it in terms of the practical way we use time is it's a kind of coordinate system. We use it uh, with it uh, to identify events. So if I'm going to meet you, there's no point in me saying to you, uh, you know, I'll meet you outside the town hall. Um, if I don't also specify a coordinate in time and when we do that it is always relative to something we tend to think of dates and times of kind of being absolute but we just happen to have established a coordinate system that started at year one at a particular point and we're now at year 2017 Uh, but the fact is it is a relative measurement to a coordinate system
1: Um, how did Einstein describe subjective time he had a very intriguing way of doing that
0: Yeah, there was a bit of humor, I I think it's fair to say. I mean, he actually claimed to have done an experiment, which I don't think he ever did practically in his life. Um, It was one of those uh,
1: thought experiments.
0: Yeah, well, when he he claimed it, he actually did it with the uh, with the actress Paulette Goddard, but I don't think it's strictly true. Uh, what he said was, when a man sits with a pretty girl for an hour, it seems like a minute. but Let him sit on a hot stove for a minute, and it's longer than any hour. That's relativity. Now, what he didn't mean is, that's my theory of relativity. What he meant is, subjectively speaking, when, when you think about time, we see it as a very variable thing. Um, we see it, you know, depending upon what we're doing, it can fly past or it can go very slowly.
1: Is there such a concept as the end of time?
0: It's it's possible, just, just as it can have a beginning. Uh, I think the simplest way of thinking of it is, for instance, if you imagine a universe that's running down, as far as we're aware, the universe is basically running down, uh, so that eventually everything becomes more spread out, lower and lower energy, until there's nothing measurable happening. You could argue that time is no longer meaningful because there's nothing to measure it relative to you know if nothing's changing how can you tell there is such a thing as time um so it, philosophically it might still exist but practically speaking uh it isn't measurable
1: that's a good way to put it philosophically it certainly still exists because i'm sure we've all gone through periods where just immensely bored nothing seems to have <laughs> be happening but nonetheless time is still ticking away um One of the things that you get into next is one of the most Mm. difficult experiments or ideas to understand, and that's the example of Newton's bucket.
0: Yeah, he he was using this to point out something odd about rotation in terms of relativity. His idea was to look at a bucket that's spinning around the way the water sort of goes up to the edge. But I think in some ways, it's easier to think of the way we get dizzy when we spin around it, which is a similar kind uh, of effect, but it's something we experience much more often than spinning buckets. Um, and the question then is, what is our frame of reference What that we're spinning in? Because you get dizzy if you're in space spinning around just as much as you do on Earth. What are you spinning with respect to? It's not like moving through space. It's harder to say just what you're spinning with respect to. Uh, And some have suggested, that, in fact, the Ernst Mach that you mentioned, uh, that it's the whole universe that you're spinning with respect to. And if you could stay still and spin the whole universe around you, you'd still get dizzy. Uh, Though as Richard Feynman, the the great American physicist, pointed out, frankly, no one has a clue because nobody knows how to spin the whole universe around. Uh, But the fact is, it's a puzzle in some ways as to how we know we're spinning when we don't have an obvious frame of reference for measurement.
1: Uh, spinning, uh, angular motion is one of the most difficult concepts in physics. I, I found when I was taking physics, one of the reasons that I segued into mathematics class some of uh, you pointed out earlier that. Um, Faraday was a great physicist, even though he had no mathematics. But he had an intimate sense of reality. For me, I was never a great mathematician, but my ability to make the connection between the mathematics and the uh, and reality was not what it should have been for a physicist. But I always, I've always enjoyed reading about physicists and physics, and that's one of the reasons that I was so eager to read your book especially when you started discussing Einstein's theories of relativity. So what are some of the key features of Einstein's theory of special relativity?
0: Well, um, his special theory of relativity, because it's a theory that's special rather than the the relativity, um, is essentially looking at uh, frames of reference where there isn't acceleration. So it's special in the case that it's limited. It's talking about a special case. Um, And what he discovered from putting together two very simple things. One, Newton's laws of motion, and secondly, uh, the discovery that light travels at the same speed whatever rate you move with respect to it. Uh, When you put those two things together, he discovered some quite remarkable things, so that, for instance, if you see something that's moving, then from your viewpoint, its time slows down, uh, it squashes up in the direction it's moving in, and, um, and also... It's mass increases, and these aren 't just subjective things this this is for real, so the you know the time literally is running slower. If you could see a clock on a fast moving spaceship, it would be running slower um, it 's not just an effect it actually is happening
1: you know one of the things that 's sort of interesting is when you read science magazines is you read how much Uh, Our ability to measure these things has improved and I remember in the early 1960s or sometime in the 1960s there was an experiment where they took two atomic clocks, put one on Mm -hmm. a jet plane, sent it around the earth and kept the other one on the earth and that was confirmation of Einstein's theory. But it's also true, somebody once mentioned, that if you're running, um, because your head is a little further away from uh, the center of the Earth, time is moving more slowly for your head than for your feet, and they've actually gotten measurements that pretty much confirm that, which just goes to show how incredibly accurate our ability to measure things has improved over the years.
0: Uh, Yeah, that's right, Uh, and another... Obvious example is the GPS satellites, the the satellite navigation satellites, uh, which have to be corrected, in fact, both for the special theory of relativity and the general theory of relativity, both of which have an effect on the passage of time, because there are basically very accurate clocks that are sending out a time signal all the time. And if we didn't correct for relativity, uh, it's been estimated that your position would drift by a few miles a day. They would get that far out if they weren't corrected.
1: Yeah, it's, just, it, it, it's amazing. Um, one of uh, one of the things about the theories of relativity is that it introduces from some very bizarre situations, and one of them is the twins paradox. Um, could you explain the twins paradox and how it's resolved?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it really is the same thing as, as your atomic clocks, but done in a more dramatic way. Uh, so the idea is you get, get yourself a pair of twins, uh, you put one on the spaceship and send her off at high speed. Um, for, uh, say, a number of years, close to the speed of light. And when she comes back, let's say when they set off, both the twins were 21. uh, The the twin on the ship might be, say, 25, and she'll come back and find her brother on the Earth is now 40, is much older. Because basically the time is running so much slower on the spaceship than it is on the Earth that by the time she gets back, uh, she's actually a lot younger than her twin. Uh, And this... You know, there's no question at all of this working. It definitely does work. There's no quite problem with it. Uh, it has been demonstrated um, and the, tr- the only trouble with making it work on any significant level is you have to go fairly close to the speed of light, which is a, not a trivial thing to do.
1: Yeah. And speaking of the speed of light, easily the most recognizable equation in the world is Einstein's equation E equals mc squared. What did that reveal?
0: This actually came out of the special theory of relativity. In fact, he had an amazing year in 1905 uh, where he produced several papers, one of which was uh, the special theory of relativity. Another um, was the one that won him the Nobel Prize. But yet another was an addendum to the theory of relativity that showed that um, there was an equivalence between energy and mass. So it was basically saying you could relate energy and mass, that stuff, the mass of matter could be converted into energy, energy could be converted into matter, and you've got in there that c squared, which is the speed of light squared, which is a very big number, so there's a huge amount of energy tied up in matter, which is why nuclear power, for instance, is so incredibly powerful.
1: You know, one of the things that was pointed out, or at least emphasized when Einstein's theory of general relativity was confirmed, is that this was a giant step Beyond what New- the way Newton viewed the universe, how did Newton perceive gravitation?
0: Well, he, he tried as much as possible not to put forward a theory for how it worked, just to give a mathematical description, and a very good one, very close to uh, to what's real, uh, of uh, of uh, the numerical values. So, how much force there is attracting um, two bodies? All he could really say is that. Uh, things with mass attracted each other uh, now this is something we say quite happily these days you know you talk about a magnet magnet attracting something or gravitational attraction but back then the word attraction really just made meant uh you know you found somebody else attractive so it, when he said for instance you know the the, the earth attracts the moon uh, he seemed to be saying that they fancied each other um and some of his opponents actually described this as being occult, not meaning sort of black black magic, but just hidden, secretive. There's no really obvious reason. Whereas what uh, what, what Einstein did was both to improve the mathematics, but also to find a reason why uh, why the gravity actually had its effect.
1: Yeah, um, one of the things that uh, characterizes Einstein's theory of general relativity, or at least I think, is the principle of equivalence. What is it and why is it so important?
0: Yeah, he actually referred to this as his happiest thought. Um, He said he was sitting in a a chair um, in the Swiss patent office, because this this came to him before he was a working scientist. Um, And he had this thought that if you're free falling so for instance if you're in a lift and it just falls um um under the pull of gravity then you would not feel gravity and we know this works because uh if you look for instance at the international space station it is falling and that's why people float about the strength of gravity up there is actually about 90 percent of the strength on Earth's surface but because it's falling People just float around. They don't feel the gravity. Luckily, it's also going sideways, so it's falling and missing,
1: which is what being, in a,
0: that's what being in an orbit is all about. So what Einstein was saying is acceleration and gravity were not just similar, but were totally equivalent, indistinguishable, the same thing, in effect. Uh, and that really was the inspiration to then start thinking about how does gravity affect things, how do, do things with mass cause other things to move differently
1: how does the math of general relativity differ from the math of special relativity
0: well, I guess the simple answer is it's an awful lot more complicated um, Einstein uh, was a was an okay mathematician it wasn't really his specialty and where the math of, of the special theory is something that frankly any um, any what stu- studying maths at um, high school level, frankly, can understand. It really isn't complicated. You don't even need calculus or anything like that. The mathematics of general relativity is much more sophisticated because it's talking about curved space. It's talking uh, about really quite complicated um, uh, theories. And also, it has within it uh, not just a couple of equations, but many equations that have to be combined together. So it is much, much harder to deal with. And you can't just sort of solve it generally, it usually has to be solved for a very specific case.
1: Um, I remember that um, one of the most impressive feats that I ever heard of in my life was uh, performed by a German physicist during World War I. he got a copy of Einstein's theory of uh, general relativity, read it, and found a solution to it on the, while, while, he's, uh, while he was on the battlefield, um, or at least involved in uh, taking part in World War One. And how you can do mathematics of complexity under those uh, circumstances is absolutely beyond me.
0: That's right, yeah, he was called Schwarzschild, uh, and essentially it was the, um, he he made the solution that would lead to the idea of black holes eventually, On and it was pretty much on the battlefield indeed.
1: Yeah, um, black holes are one of the ways that we test the theory of relativity, I think. Are there others?
0: Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the most recent uh, uh, and interesting one, I guess, is, is gravitational waves, um, where uh, there was... a quite a big, uh, I think, media coverage uh, when it was announced uh, in early 2016 uh, that the previous year they'd been detected. And this was something that Einstein predicted way back in uh, 1916. Um, Although, funnily enough, a lot of the media coverage said uh, that what had happened proved Einstein right. In some ways it did, because it was yet more confirmation of general relativity, although, frankly, we were pretty certain about it already. But actually, in a way, it proved him wrong, because he always said Gravitational waves should exist, but we will never detect them because they are going to be so weak. Uh, And they are incredibly weak. It's an amazing bit of science that they did detect them. But what it makes us able to do is produce a breakthrough in astronomy. Arguably the first big new way of observing the universe since telescopes. And it's given us already the first direct detection of black holes. Beforehand, we've only ever seen indirectly the things that black holes affect around them where this is directly detecting uh, a wave that's coming from a, a pair of black holes.
1: Yeah, it's just amazing. We live in amazing times, no question about that. Um, what do you consider to be the essential steps in getting from your toy universe to one that contains us?
0: Uh, well, I must admit, I didn't really intend to go all the way and build one for real. Uh, mm-hmm. Like like all models, it, it's very simplified. But I thought it was important to go beyond... Just the basic remit of physics, because relativity doesn't stop there, and so I do go on to talk about how it influences life, uh, and and how our creativity as humanity has shaped our existence.
1: And I remember when I was uh, when I was in high school, the Miller-Urey mm-hmm. experiment took place. And it was a subject of uh, uh, media coverage for science back then because I, you know, we found out about it even while I was in high school. What was the Miller-Urey experiment, and what does it tell us about the origin of life? Well, in some
0: ways, not not a lot, because um, the ideas behind it have been partially uh, proved to be incorrect. But the idea was very interesting. What what they tried to do was recreate. Uh, what things were like when life first formed on Earth. Uh, So we're talking uh, about putting in some uh, chemical mix that they thought was the way the atmosphere was. That was one of the problems. It's actually they were wrong um, in the early days. And then sending electricity through it to simulate the stimulus of lightning. And what it did do is to produce some of, if you like, the building blocks of life, some simple organic materials Uh, which are used to build the proteins, which is essential for life. Uh, But there's an awful long way to go from getting those little building blocks. It's a bit like sort of, you know, assembling a bag of screws and shaking it about and and hoping you're going to get a car out of it. It's not going to happen. Uh, You need a little bit more going on.
1: (laughs) Nice way to put it. Um, One of the great conflicts that you would have thought would have been resolved by now, but hasn't been, at least in the United States and probably Throughout other areas of the world, is the eventual resolution between the theories of evolution of an, and of intelligent design. This is one of the ways in which your book differs from standard theories of relativity. You discuss topics that are controversial and topics that deal with things just beyond the basic uh, science that Einstein created. So, what do you see as the eventual resolution between these two theories? Well, one of the reasons. I have to
0: bring it in is partly because I'm talking about life, but also because evolution is a very um, relativistic theory. It's all about how we are relative to our environment. And frankly, it's so beautifully simple and impossible to avoid that I think the only strange thing about evolution is that it wasn't discovered 2,000 years ago. Um, It just is, in the end, is a very simple, straightforward thing that if you can change, if you can pass that change on, Um, to your offspring, and you can be affected by your environment, then the chances are, over time, you're going to uh, become a species that is better in that particular environment. Um, And frankly, from a scientific viewpoint, I don't think there is any conflict. The fact is, evolution is totally accepted. Uh, Intelligent design is really a way of trying to pick at the edges of evolution, uh, to try to find things that are difficult to explain. Uh, And the fact is, evolution, you know, explains a lot of things. It's not going to explain everything. There are various other things that add in to the way um, that living things have developed. Um, It's not just about literally uh, natural selection. Um, The fact is, uh, though, that evolution is absolutely solid scientifically. Intelligent design is as yet, as far as I can see, unnecessary
1: yeah I think it's unnecessary too, and I think that's the viewpoint of most people who are scientists, even you know even scientists, I know a number of scientists who are deeply religious, many scientists have been throughout uh, 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 throughout history, and they don't see they don't necessarily see a conflict. I think that uh, um between being religious and uh, and holding such things as the theories of evolution as as established science. One of the things that you did um, in your book is you spent a lot of time on two very fascinating topics, creativity and innovation. What role do creativity and innovation play in determining man's place in the universe?
0: I think they're absolutely essential because the way we as humans uh, are fundamentally different, I'd suggest, is that we actively change our frame of reference. So we change our environment rather than allowing it to change us. Uh, And creativity and innovation, they're, they're a way of looking at things differently. We actually have to change our frame of reference to see things differently and, as a result, do something in a different way. So evolution relies effectively on us being changed by our environment. What creativity and innovation allows us to do is change the environment so we're in the driving seat. So it totally changes the way we look at things and how things develop.
1: Um, Is there a difference between creativity and innovation?
0: To be honest, the the words are quite often used interchangeably. Uh, I think it can be quite convenient to think of creativity as coming up with ideas and innovation being about making those ideas work in some practical sense. Uh, That's quite a useful distinction. But but in the end, it's all uh, about seeing things differently and as a result, making something happen.
1: Yeah, I, boy, I'll tell you, In uh, you've just described science and technology in about seven words seeing things differently <laughs> and making things happen. Um, that, what role does communication play in creativity and innovation?
0: I think the important thing to think about is that, on the whole, it's an individual who comes up with an idea. Uh, but unless that idea is shared and unless it's built on, nothing is going to happen. So, communication really is the key for getting from that basic creativity to innovation, to things happening and to science. And I'd say that's one of the reasons why writing has been so hugely influential, because it's a way of transcending time and space. Uh, You know, you can do some work now, and in 500 years time, somebody can take your maths or take your science and make use of it because of writing. And of course, we now extend that to the internet and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is, communication is key to making use of creativity.
1: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned the internet because I've been uh, one of the things that I noticed about the internet um, is that the internet has has made uh, research mathematics, which I've spent a large portion of my life involved in, so much easier. Back in the 1960s, when I got my PhD. Um, what you would do is you would read articles in journals. You would, uh, you might be lucky enough to find people in, uh, in your immediate vicinity who were interested in the same problems that you could, that you would work with. But for the most part, you did work on your own. You went to conferences. You discussed the idea there. And communication between people who were separated by some distance, even though, you know, we had mail, we had telephone, was relatively slow. And you the people with whom you could communicate were limited. Now it's it's amazing because I've written research papers with people that I've never met. Um, mm-hmm. I public, uh, um I published an article on the internet and before uh, you know in one of the electronic journals and back in the Back in the day, if, uh, if, 50, if 50 people got copies of an article that I had written, it was astounding. And this article that I, uh, that I wrote has been downloaded 10,000 times or something like that. It's, it's, and you can see how having a tool like the Internet is going to make science progress so much more rapidly than it did in the past.
0: I think that's absolutely right. And one of the important things about science is is peer review, the ability for other people to see your work and comment on it. And traditionally, again, this has relied on paper journals on reviewers having to do that. Now we have things like pre-publishing where where people can put something online. Other people can look at it and comment on it very early. And it actually can do a lot more to make things happen.
1: Yeah. It makes things so much more efficient. It's just, you know, Mm -hmm. it's just incredible. Um, uh, how do you think evolution has influenced creativity and innovation?
0: I think what's interesting uh, is that if you compare human beings to chimpanzees that the chimps have evolved more evolved more in the last 100 years, 100,000 years rather than we have. But our creativity has allowed us to to produce a kind of super evolution. So for instance animals might take millions of years to evolve the ability to fly, uh, but we only took a few thousand years of, of knowledge, if you like, to innovate enough to make airplanes um, that, you know, evolution um, itself in some ways it has become less important because of creativity and innovation. Uh, but it is still going on, of course.
1: Yeah, um, and now we're starting to reach the end of your or book, and it did introduce some things that I'd never heard of. For instance, one was the British experiment involving summer time. That's not summer time, there's a space between <laughs> summer and time for those who are listening. And how does it help explain one of the dilemmas faced by rationality?
0: Yeah, and it was quite interesting. It was back in 1968. Um, and the British government experimented with keeping daylight saving all the year round um, and it actually significantly reduced road casualties uh, because it was light more of the time when people were typically driving but it was the experiment was scrapped before it was finished because although it had an obvious benefit, um, there were some people who were injured as a result of it because it was darker in the mornings. And so the choice was between the actual people who got injured and killed and many more theoretical people who are being saved. Now, rationally speaking, uh, you know, if you're in Mr. Spock mode, you go for the theoretical people who are being saved because a lot more people are not going to be hurt. But the fact is, the way we deal with things as human beings isn't, isn't always rational. Uh, and from a, if you like a political frame of reference, it was more important that the individual's who actually had been hurt as a result of it, were, were uh, you know made to feel that the government was doing something about it, and they stopped the experiment.
1: Yeah, they vote. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, and I alluded to this earlier, um, but it's a very important idea. What is the anthropic principle? It, it's
0: a strange sort of argument, um, it, but what it basically says is, um, you know, We wouldn't be here if the universe wasn't the way it is for us to be here and see it. It has to be the way it is, because if it wasn't, we wouldn't be here. Um, And so, for instance, there there are various aspects of the universe, uh, like the speed of light, like various other constants. They're they're only a little bit different. The fact is that the universe wouldn't have worked in the way that it has. We probably would not exist. Uh, And what the anthropic principle says is, but they have to be like that, because if they didn't, We wouldn't be here to observe them. Uh, And at at that simple level, it's not not too bad, but it can be dangerous if you then try to build a structure of logic on it that says, um, you know, we ought to uh, adopt this particular scientific approach, this particular theory, because um, of the anthropic principle. It's it's, it's pretty dangerous on the whole to, to build on it scientifically.
1: Yeah, I have to bring in here one of my absolute favorite examples in this area. It's the efficiency of hydrogen fusion. Hydrogen Mm -hmm. fusion, which powers the stars, if it were 15% more efficient, what would happen is that it would, all the hydrogen would convert to helium much too quickly. We'd have no water and therefore there would be no life. And if it were 15% less efficient, we'd never evolve beyond stars being big glowing balls of hydrogen. And it's just incredible when you look at the way the universe is, how many situations like that actually occur with the various constants that we discussed earlier and Mm -hmm. i like the explanation um i that one that's most philosophically satisfying to me is the idea of the multiverse is that is that there's a huge multiverse out there and all these various combinations are being tried in all the different compartments of the universe, and here we are in one in which the efficiency of hydrogen fusion is what it is, and so we're here, but there are a whole bunch of empty universes out there.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I must admit, I, I have mixed feelings about it from my viewpoint. Um, it, some ways, it feels just a little bit unlikely in terms of uh, occam's razor you know that the, the yeah um but on the other hand some aspects of the of of being a multiverse do make some kind of sense that yes it may be there are other bits of the universe or the the whole multiverse where the laws of nature are different and there obviously we couldn't exist we have to be in the bits uh where it is okay so it's interesting but it's not something you can ever test that's the uh-huh. thing I think. so in, in a sense Don't count it's on not it.
1: totally okay you know the dangers (laughs) of saying it's not something we can ever test that's happened in science a number of times before and normally predictions like that uh, (laughs) that (laughs) you live to regret them but we won't hold you to it Uh, (laughs) why is the statement everything is relative not the same thing as everything has equal value
0: i think they're almost opposites because Everything is relative, says we need other things to measure against to understand our frame of reference. Uh, It certainly doesn't mean anything goes, and it's not sort of vague and waffly. It's precise. It's about measurement. Uh, If we didn't have relativity, you couldn't assign anything, arguably, or many things, a value. However, that says nothing about, you know, everything has to be okay. Um, The fact is, in science... We often can disprove things, um, and the fact is uh, that many of the ideas uh, that perhaps use slightly fluffy ideas around relativity or quantum theory or whatever, they're just using the words. They're not really looking at how science works and doing something in a scientific way.
1: Yeah, I hate it when that happens, and I'm sure you do too. Um, I'd like to conclude with what is probably an extremely important question that you don't see asked or attempts to answer in books like this, and I think it's an incredibly important one. What dangers does science present and what dangers does it face?
0: I think science likes to present itself as being neutral uh, and and almost absolute, but we do have to be aware of the consequences of using science and technology. and it's a balance. I think climate change is a good example where we've been late in thinking through the implications of our scientific progress and the technology we've developed. Um, but at a time like now, when when rationality is often being challenged with if you like, alternative truths, uh, I think we need to stand up for the importance of the scientific viewpoint. Because science has brought us a huge way forward in terms of health and well-being and appreciation of the universe. And we need to treasure that and protect it from those who, I don't know, think the opinion of a celebrity, say, has more weight than scientific evidence. Uh, And in the end, relativity is at the heart of that understanding. So, yes, science has to be aware and scientists have to be aware of the implications of what they're doing. And I think we're getting better at that uh, than used to be the case. Uh, But equally so, the fact that it sometimes can have negative implications shouldn't
1: be allowed to outweigh all the incredible benefits we've had from it. Um, Brian, you expressed that beautifully, and I agree with you 100%. Um, I think you know, in, uh, you know, when the history of our species is written, uh, there are going to be some achievements that uh, we're going to be really proud of, and I think, our, uh, I think among our proudest achievements are the discoveries of the way the universe works and how to um, use the way the universe works in order to enrich our own lives.
0: Indeed, uh, I think that's so true. Uh, and in, that's really in some ways, what drove me to write this book in the first place is is tr- trying to present that picture.
1: Well, it's a you know it's a lovely book. It's a lovely book on several different levels. Um, and I hope our listeners will go out and buy it and read it. Um, and I usually conclude these interviews by asking how um, how listeners can get in touch with you if they should so desire.
0: Simplest way is to go to my website, which is Brian. uh, Sorry, it's Brian Clegg, B R I A N C L E W G dot net, Brian Clegg dot net, and you'll find all the information you need there.
1: Okay, and do you have any projects on the horizon?
0: there's always something Uh, literally this week I will be sending into the publisher uh, a short book on gravitational waves the the topic we mentioned earlier because it is just a fascinating subject
1: okay it is a fascinating subject and you'd better have something about Stein 2051b in there (laughs) (laughs) put it in if it isn't there put it in
0: (laughs) yeah well it's
1: it's referred to indirectly shall we say (laughs) oh okay (laughs) Brian it's been a pleasure Okay. Thank you very much. And thank you. Take care.